slash and cast. All right, folks. Welcome to the Monsters, Madness, and Magic Podcast. I'm your host, Justin, here with a quick word before we dive in. Now, in this episode, I chat with actor and singer Robert Davi about Frank Sinatra, the stage, Spielberg, the Goonies, Die Hard, and more. Also, this episode is just a tad bit shorter than our usual releases. Robert's in the middle of several productions and was kind enough to get a quick chat in during all the chaos. But there's still a lot of good nuggets of wisdom that'll make it well worth your time. Anyway, without further ado, here you go. I'm not afraid of the dark. I like the dark. I love the dark. But I hate nature. I hate nature. Wait a sec! Look, mister, I need a ride. My friends and I just had a run-in with these really disgusting people. You might have heard of them, the Fatellis. Well, we found their hideout. And could you please, please take me to the sheriff's station? I can describe all three of them. What the hell are you doing? He's only a kid. Can't you handle a kid even? Greetings, boils and ghouls. This is your comrade, the Crypt Keeper here, reporting dead from the sanctuary of the strange. Tonight's macabre myth is a fright-filled feature, one overflowing with monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs> Alright, so I don't do anything fancy here, Robert, so so we have a platform to jump off here. Take us back in time to when you were a youngster. Were you a book reader, fort builder, troublemaker, or all of the above? Well, let's see. I did build forts. I did read books. I was not a tremendous troublemaker, although I'm sure I had my fair share of... <laughs> I had fun. I wasn't too much of it, but I was just... I loved language, and I loved music mm. and literature and listened to a lot of records on the old wind-up record players in the basement. I pretended I was a conductor. Of course, I had my normal play of love of sports. and But that's kind of... I showed an early appreciation and uh, desire to want to, I guess, entertain in some ways. Did you have a specific author or genre that you were going towards when you were reading? Well, I read everything I could. I wish I could have put books into a uh, blender and drink them <laughs> down. <laughs> you know, I mean, everything from... Thomas Wolfe to F. Scott Fitzgerald to, uh, I mean, Ernest Hemingway, Shakespeare, Père de Chardin, eclectic hunger for books and good literature. Henry Miller, you know, just all over the place. You're still a big reader today? Not as much so much as I was then, but I do have a ton of books I order that I don't get to read. (laughs) (laughs) I hear you. Books used to be, I used to be surrounded. Mm -hmm. My apartment, when I first came to Los Angeles, was on the beach. I had a fireplace. I didn't have a proper bed, but I, I slept on the floor. You know, I had blankets and pillows and nice little cushiony thing. But I was 
surrounded by piles of books mm -hmm. and play. What about your parents? Were they involved in the arts at all? Did they help usher you that way? I think they had a appreciate. They had, no, they did have an appreciation for music and, and literature. My mom was very um, encouraging. My dad at one time wanted to sing and to act even after the Navy came to California and had a screen test, but they told him he had to get rid of his accent and he just gave it up and, you know, he didn't believe in dreams. You know, he was a guy that believed in hard work and hard labor and he was in the Navy when he was younger after Pearl Harbor, And but he was, a, they both died young, but they were big supporters of me going into the arts. Well, there was always some signpost of someone validating that you had talent. First one was from fourth grade, Miss Alexander. We did a play and she walked my parents out to the parking lot, Half Hollow Hills Elementary School, and she said, encourage him in the arts, he's got talent. I felt good about that. I remember that feeling and I remember that moment. And then when I was in church in eighth grade and I was singing, they looked over and all of a sudden, you know, a voice kind of emerged. I was playing football in Seton Hall High School. I was in the drama club and I was singing in the shower <laughs> after football practice and a nun was walking by and she heard this voice emerge from the galleys much like believe it or not what happened in goonies when sean astin is walking by and he hears the singing coming from the depths yeah yeah <laughs> and nun, and then the nun going to see who was singing and they sent the boy and another guy into the shower i was in the shower you know nice echoey sound and they said uh, it's robert dobby and and then she just said, I want you to join the uh, the Glee Club. And that sounded a little bit not my thing. I was already doing the acting thing. And then I went to the, she called my mother and encouraged. And I did. And I went and there were all these nice, you know, a lot more women on the girls on the, uh, the Glee Club than they were on the football field. So I did get encouraged to sing and stay. And uh, so I was doing, you know, the nuns really encouraged me in the arts. Got my first singing teacher, they found. That was it. Then I wrote a letter. To, I was working with a guy named Michael Signorelli. That was the first teacher. And then wrote a letter to Tito Gobi. He was like the Marlon Brando of the opera world. As a kid, and then I sang for him, and then I worked with him. Then he put me with somebody at Juilliard, Dan Farrow, Samuel Margulies, who taught Robert Merrill, and Roland Wyatt, who was with the Curtis School of Music. And I just was hunger for, for learning about the voice. At the same time, studying with then Stella Adler, who was a huge influence on me, then got into the actor's studio. So my formative years were all that. And then finally, uh, a friend of mine, the head of Disney Music in the mid-2000s, recommended Gary Katona, who was foremost uh, a voice builder. It's safe to say that music was your first love and that sort of led you into acting? No, no, no. Concurrent. Mm, mm, concurrent. Gotcha. It was really concurrent. I had a love for both. You know, I used to pretend I was conducting symphonies in the basement and I'd play us this upright piano that we had, like I thought I was Vladimir Horowitz or Arthur Rubinstein. I, I, the need to express was the issue, I guess, in some way and still is. So do you recall your very first time on stage acting and did it go off without a hiccup? Whatever you consider your first time to be, be it third grade or Well, whatever. that was fourth grade. We did a play called George Washington Slept Here and I played Sam, the black butler. I got a lot of response from that. And I, you know, had to play an older character. Later on, I did a Shakespeare play in seventh grade, uh, Macbeth, the Scottish play, and that got well received. And then in high school, I was winning awards, these little Academy Awards, the Forensic League. You would do a, a dramatic piece, multi-characters, and they would judge that, and you would get an, a trophy. And I was winning each week, and I won first place New York State, and then sixth in the nation, and I did the same thing with solo competition. 
in the New York State School Music Association, won first place singing. And then I had gotten the Raymond J. Bar Beauty Award for the most promising athlete on the Eastern Seaboard. I was a terrific football player. What position? Oh, everything. I played many different positions. I was I was in the game and, and for the whole game, everything. Had to do it all back then. Does your approach as an actor differ depending on to a role depending on if you're on stage or on screen? Process is all the same. You know, the, the research and the process and the growth is all basically the same. The difference between film and stage in a certain way is uh, is really not that much difference in terms of the preparation, but the projection is different. Right. You may have a different projection uh, when you're on stage. The, and it's, it's much like if you think of a trumpet player, he puts the mute on and that he has to blow just as hard with the mute on as he does with it off. How did that transition happen to you, your first transition from stage to screen? Well, I, I was doing extra work in New York, of course, as a kid. I went to Hofstra University on a drama scholarship. I did a lot of plays in college. Then I started working with Stella Adler and we were doing the scenes there three years. And then I did my first film with Frank Sinatra in 1977. Wow. How did that feel? <laughs> well, being an Italian-American kid, you know, Italian immigrants, Sicilian and Naples, the family, my father was from Sicily, Torretta, and my mother's family was from Naples. You know, so there's two figures in an Italian family at that time. There was Sinatra, uh, the, well, the Pope and Sinatra, and not necessarily <laughs> that order. <laughs> And Joe DiMaggio was up there, too. You yeah, know, but... yeah, yeah. Are you still active at all on stage, or did you just kind of transition completely out of it? No, no. Now I do the stage, and I love it, uh, with my singing. I tour the world doing concerts. I don't know if you've seen me on YouTube. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, do you still act on stage? In terms of a proper play, for for instance, no. I haven't done that. And you mentioned some, uh, some of the people you worked with early on. I was reading your bio, and it said that you listed a... Uh, Martin Landau is one of your teachers. Yes, yes, he was someone at the actor's studio. Martin Landau, Sandra Seacat, who recently died, was a great teacher. Stella Adler, Lee Strasberg, Milton Gutzelis, a man named George Standoff, who was working with Michael Chekhov, who was considered the greatest actor of the Moscow Art Theater, which you look like you'll be playing a character out of, <laughs> out of Uncle Vanya. So I'm available. You know Uncle Vanya, you, you got something. On hey, if anybody needs a Rasputin, I'm ready. I'm actually speaking with uh, Martin's daughter, Juliet, soon. That's why that kind of jumped off the screen to me. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Martin was a great guy, good friend. You've appeared in a, a shit ton of films, Robert, but uh, my first experience with your work was The Goonies. So how did that come opportunity come your way? Was it a typical audition, right place, right time? I was signed to do Rambo 2 with Sly. And I uh, was getting in shape. I was in great shape. My agent at the time, Gersh, great agency, called me up and said, hey, Spielberg wants to meet with you. And uh, Dick Donner, they're doing a movie called Goonies. And I guess the casting director wanted me to go in on it. I says, Goonies? I says, I'm doing Rambo. I can't. He says, no, 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 no. Well, if we have that problem and you get it, then we can work out the dates and we see what happens. He goes, we can work out dates. because the and board hadn't been set yet. I go, huh, all right. So reluctantly I went and they paired me with Joe Pantoliano, who I knew already because we did From Here to Eternity together and a heart to heart episode. So Joey and I did this improv together and they loved it and they said, hey, we want you. Now I had the dilemma of being in Rambo. So I had to now figure out that problem, like they said. They then went and they couldn't get in touch with production. I tried to get in touch with people, was moving on and on. And I really didn't. I mean, it was great because Dick Donner, great director, and Steven Spielberg. I mean, you know, and Warner Brothers. So you're thinking, okay, great. But this is now Rambo 2. Rambo was a huge hit. Sly was an iconic figure already. 
and a friend. So Rambo two or Goonies at the time. Yeah. What the, what's a Goonies? Exactly. <laughs> but they then released me from Rambo. I got a call one morning. The agent said, hey, you're released from Rambo. We're making the Goonies deal. So I guess they, they may have pushed some buttons. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. They really wanted you. <laughs> Who knows what they did. And the next thing I know, I'm doing the Goonies. And that was a great experience. And it became a film that is just every generation is. And Dick Donner, the director, said it at the time. He said, this will be the modern day Wizard of Oz. Wow. That's a great comparison, too. Never really clicked in my head. But yeah, that's a great comparison. He said that. He said wow. that back then when we were shooting. Did you believe him? You know, uh, who knows? But he said that. He didn't even <laughs> remember he said it to me. <laughs> I saw him years later. And he goes, huh, yeah. Just speaking to how special the Goonies is, like when you're working on something, in retrospect, of course, you can tell. You see how special it's become. But when you're working on it, when you're in the moment, is there any kind of inkling that you get to, you know, this is this is great? Well, you knew from the pirate ship and all that, the kids and the, and, you know, the magic of it. There was some something there, and the story, the story resonates because it's a, uh, it's a story about saving your, the kids save their family. Right, it's something everyone I mean? can relate to. Yeah, and people relate to to that sentiment. I had a friend of mine from Italy, a very big, big music guy named Jax. He's very famous in Italy. I did a music video with him several years ago. And then I wound up doing the Italian version of The Voice that he was the host of, one of the judges of. But I was their guest artist one, one week. Ariana Grande was the week before me and I was the next week in there. So when I met him in New York one time, when he was asking me to do this music video, he showed me, he said, Goonies was more important to him than War and Peace. Tattoos. It was interesting. It was an interesting, fun thing. Post Goonies, when did you? How long did it take you to realize just how big the film had become? Was it years before, or was it pretty quick? Well, no, because it did good at the box office. There were other films that were doing better, but then over the years, it just grew. The appreciation for Goonies just grew over the years. Same thing with Die Hard. I didn't expect Die Hard to be so lasting. Now, you know the Bond films are lasting because the Bond films have that longevity. You know what I mean? But those two films, you you know, you didn't know they were going to hear the decades later and they're still being watched and loved. And, you know, Die Hard, James Bond, you've worked with some of the top people in the business. So how does Spielberg's approach differ from other directors you've worked with? Well, Spielberg did, Steven did the second unit shooting on all the film. All good directors are open to suggestions and open to, and, and have great ideas and see something. And, you know, egos don't get in the way of anything. You know what I mean? It's about the product. And Steven is, I remember, very open, very, very childlike in his enthusiasm, you know? It wasn't belaboring, you know what I mean? It was, uh, it was, it was fun. Just on James Bond, were you a fan of the franchise and growing up at all? Oh, sure. Who wasn't? So just like, you know, you work with Frank Sinatra and now you're working on, you know, James Bond. So you're just hitting some of your childhood favorites there. Yeah, because when you're doing the Bond film, I don't know anyone who hasn't looked into a mirror and said, Bond, James Bond. <laughs> or wanted to play a villain or wanted to play a Bond girl. You know, I mean, everyone had that from the opening beats of that great theme music. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? You worked a lot between uh, film and television. Do you have a preference between the two, or do you find one more enjoyable? No, no, I didn't mind that. I didn't mind. I was like one of the first guys, movie guys, to go into a TV series. Now they're all doing it. I did it in '96. I had a feature career, and I starred in a TV series called Profiler. 
for four and a half years. That was before Criminal Minds and all those other things. So no, I like the uh, idea of a series. It's fun, the continuity of character and where it goes and your family that you grow with. You know what I mean? It's good. Uh, I enjoyed it. I rather enjoyed it. So you've been doing uh, music your whole life, like you spoke or to earlier. But you released your uh, you released your debut album in 2011. Was that just the uh, right time for you? Well, I had directed a movie called The Dukes and co-wrote about a doo-wop group, and I sing one song in that. 2008 won a bunch of awards. It's a fun film. You should see it. You'll like it. It's it's good. It's got a message in the ravioli, and it's a good little film. So I, I sang a song in there, and everyone said, why aren't you singing? So I thought back, and I, I'd always loved the opera, but now I had a hunger for the American songbook. Uh, Frank Sinatra had died. He was dead a decade or so, and I felt that I could add something to the songbook. There were a lot of guys doing it, but not anybody that had the film career nor the depth of tone that he had, and I felt that I could at least add something to of my own to them to the, that embraced the music and then i wound up doing my first album that went to number six on billboard jazz produced by a man named phil ramon so i wanted to ask you robert when you look back over all the roles that you've had in your acting career is there one that stands out as the most challenging you know maybe one you lost the most sleep over pulled your hair out over when you're a younger actor you know everything is is uh, i didn't look at it as pulling my hair out i looked at it as having to incorporate a character inside and learn about that character and find it and interpret it so there was not there wasn't that it wasn't that issue you're concerned al pacino said stage you're walking a tightrope and there's no net underneath film the tightrope is painted on the floor so you're still walking a tightrope but you don't fall so far and that's a Pacino quote I always liked. And that's kind of the good experience of it. Uh, and I like performing, you know, the music is, is, is fun. That's intense concentration. What's the best acting advice you've received and who gave it to you? There's many different things that, like a boxer that trains and you've got, you just have an instinct then. You kind of review things, but there's so many different, there's a variety of things. You can't give one thing, hey, do this and, you know. Remembering your lines is a good start. That's always a good start. <laughs> and that, that takes practice, but also there's a way of memorizing the lines. You know, you don't want to just do memory. You want to memorize the subtext, which leads to the line. Right. So you work on the subtextual aspect to it that then gives you the line. I know a lot of actors, uh, they differ on their approach to the backstory of the character they're working on. How deep do you go to the subtext behind the script? Do you ever come up with a, I know it was like some, I spoke with Armin Shimmerman and he said, you know, sometimes he'll write a journal in the uh, mold of that character. Do you do anything like that or? I used to do that quite a bit. You finally, now it's jazz. It's like jazz music because what worked one night may change the next, you know what I mean? So it's a, you, you live in the moment, basically. I think it's all a process of learning about oneself and then learning the differences between yourself and the character you're going to play. And then now making the leap between the character's understanding and your understanding and being able to shift your perception into the characters. And that, you know, you don't want to cement anything because you want to leave yourself open to what the other players are doing. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you get that someone's working too hard on an effective memory or a sense of memory, you get a glazed over look in their eyes and they're not responding to the reality that's happening right in front of them. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you have to, that's where you have to then have the response to. Well said. This is uh, something I like to ask everybody because you never know what they're going to say. Have you ever had an experience that you would consider supernatural or paranormal? Oh, yes. Well, when I was younger, I was ill and I was cured by uh, a Capuchin priest who had the stigmata of Christ. 
Wow. I say that that definitely fits. <laughs> so what's on the horizon for you, Robert? You got anything coming out that you can share with us without getting in trouble? Yeah, yeah. I got a new album we're working on. I'm not too far from finishing that. I've got a new TV series called Paper Empire that we're that was that call about that got us off the phone. We're waiting for the funding to come in to finish that. I've got a couple of movies. I got the Reagan film. I have a cameo in that. I play Brezhnev. I've got horror film I did called The Lurking Fear and one called what else was it called? The Man Who Drew God, a film I did with Franco Nero. Then I have a film called The Engineer that's going to have its premiere at the Mammoth Film Festival with Emil Hirsch. We shot it in Israel. Uh, another film called The Gemini Lounge I did about the Roy DeMeo mob cameos in that. So I got a bunch of, th and then another couple of other pictures. There's a couple of other ones in there. Gotcha, man. You got a lot coming up. You're staying busy. Yes, they, you know, busy and they're fun. And so they should be out some point this year. That's great. Well, Robert, I don't have anything else for you, man. Uh, thank you for taking some of your time and chatting with me. And Hey, it's been a while, bro, right? Yeah, yeah, well, we got it. But that's all that matters. <laughs> so you're over there in North Carolina. South Carolina, just below it. <laughs> right, South Carolina, right. right. Yeah. South Carolina. And how long you been there? It's my whole life. Okay. And, Ray, what kind of writing are you? What have you been writing on? I write horror stories. <laughs> and uh, right now, actually, uh, my buddy and I were working on an audio drama for a horror franchise that uh, had two films come out in the late 80s, and we're doing the third installment of it as an audio drama. Oh, what is it? It's called uh, The Unnameable. It's a H.P. Lovecraft story, and we've got the uh, original cast coming back to reprise their roles. Oh, that's going to be fun. Yeah, it should be very cool. So you like that genre, huh? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big horror guy. Remember Maniac Cop films? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I've, we didn't touch on that, but I, I'm aware that you were in them. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, Justin, thank you. Sorry for the time problem. Hey, shit happens, man. We got it done. Yeah, I, we got it done. I appreciate you. All right, brother. God bless you. Have a good day, Robert. Bye. Slash and cast. All right, folks. That's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Robert. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you back next time. Monsters, madness, and magic. <laughs>